This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is Carol Walker in for Matt Chorley this bank holiday. Coming up, what's wrong with Westminster? More bullying, more sexual harassment and more sleaze. But first, as always on a Monday, it's the Colonists panel with Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Rachel, the... A story about this Lib Lab pact, both uh, Keir Starmer and Ed Davey denying the Conservatives' claims that Labour and the Liberal Democrats have formed a secret pact to inflict what they call the hardest possible blow on the Tories in Thursday's local elections. What did you make of this one? Well, I think it's really interesting. I rather hope they do do some kind of pact in a way, because what happened at the last election was the right of politics all came together under Boris Johnson's Conservatives. If you remember, he did that, effectively did a deal with the Brexit party to back off. Uh, He gave them various concessions to Nigel Farage, and they backed off standing uh, against the Conservatives in, in those seats, which gave Boris Johnson his huge majority. But the centre and the left was divided between multiple parties, the Lib Dems, Labour, the Greens in Scotland. There was also the SNP. Um, so if if the Keir Starmer is ever going to have any chance of getting to Downing Street, he's going to have to do some kind of either official or unofficial pact um, or deal in certain seats to for... Um, Labour people to to not campaign quite so hard in the seats where the Lib Dems uh, have a better chance and vice versa in the seats where Labour have a better chance. Uh, and it's just, in a way, it's common sense politically for them to do that. It would be a disaster probably for them to make it a, a formal, official pact. Um, and everybody needs to have the chance to vote for whoever they want to vote for. Um, but it makes perfect sense for them unofficially to do some kind of deal. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the Conservative Party chairman, Oliver Dowden, has tried to suggest this is a, a terrible thing because voters are being denied a proper, proper choice. Um, Libby, I think we've got you back. Libby, good morning. Yes, absolutely. Yes, no, I was there all the time, really. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it, it, 
it, it's it's interesting because uh, yeah, I, I agree with Rachel. I think it would be it, quite a good thing. I think in certain um, areas, but I think what needs to happen is that the Lib Dems need to believe that Labour is now truly liberal. I think a lot of Lib Dems were very much scared off during the Corbyn period and the the you know the sort of transition period and and all the difficulties, and that there are still figures inside the Labour Party which the Liberal Democrats will recoil from. And so you need a sort of trust between the two that they are basically still pretty liberal and pretty centrist uh, for that to work. Otherwise, liberal voters will, will sort of panic and spin off into yet another new party, I suppose. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, that um, both Labour and Lib Dems are saying very clearly that there's absolutely no question of any stitch up or packs. The Lib Dems slightly still, I think, feel that they were damaged by their coalition with the Conservatives and they, mm. they don't want to admit it, do they, uh, Rachel? No, that's absolutely right. But I think in the end, the voters do sort of think along these lines. And, and I think when it comes to the next election and this local elections too, there'll be quite a lot of people voting against the Conservatives, voting against Boris Johnson over the parties, mm. over the sort of increasingly illiberal approach on immigration, on, you know, things like proroguing Parliament, the constitutional questions, the lack of integrity, really, at the heart of government. Mm. Um, so I think the voters, in, the, in a way that they did at the last election, when they voted really to get Brexit done, they voted against all the faffing and the kind of you know, messing around in Parliament to stop Brexit. I think voters quite often, they join forces against somebody as well as for somebody. I, I could hear you nodding in agreement there, Libby. <laughs> yes, I, to, to be honest, I like coalitions. Uh, I had hopes of yes. the last coalition and I, I wore odd socks for several weeks <laughs> as, a, as a gesture. Uh, a, <laughs> Brightly coloured odd socks showing through my shoes as, as a gesture of support for the coalition. Uh, I, I like cooperation, basically. Uh, I think I think the polarisation of politics has not done us much good. What we're seeing at the moment is some of the Tory right behaving in the most ridiculously right way and Labour still having its kind of dragging extreme leftists. And it's just not helpful. You know, it's, I'm a centrist. Mm. I'm just wondering if you're still wearing your blue and yellow socks, uh, Libby, to show solidarity with Ukraine this time. <laughs> Pretty well, I... I sometimes try to, uh, <laughs> I sometimes try to wear socks that match. You know, her. <laughs> I work at home a lot. Yeah, let's talk about your column today. Um, care scandal exposes carelessness of the state. Um, you're concerned that privatisation isn't necessarily the right solution for various sectors of our economy. No, it isn't. I think there are core public services like water, children's homes, care homes, prisons, uh, even sort of army recruitment, you know, where actually if you're going to privatise, and I'm not saying I'm always against it, and you know, it's had some advantages, you know, if anyone remembers post office telephones and then encountered BT, realised that, you know, commercial profit-driven privatisation can sometimes work, but you need the most fantastically keen and efficient regulation of it. And I was very struck by NHS England over the Priory cases saying it will not tolerate service failures. Well, because actually year after year it seems to have to. And you had situations where the regulation Regulator sanctions, as with water, are simply shrugged off. You know, you let somebody get so rich that they don't care 
that for dropping sewage in the rivers. They're, they're um, you know, pay 12 million fine. You know, so what? You know, uh, they, they don't need it. So what you need, it was really a, a cry for the efficiency of regulators, you know, that regulators in privatized things, you know, licensing and so on should be, in, and outsourcing as well, because not all private, sometimes it's outsourcing like children's homes and so on. It should be terrifically powerful. Both councils and government should have enormous powers to clamp down and sanction and improve these services. And that is not always the case. There's quite interesting reports from the Audit Commission, you know, sort of pleading for greater professionalism and greater resource and greater vigour in regulatory bodies. Because it seems to me, and this is just psychologically thinking, that they could they do sometimes quite easily get so close to the providers that they don't sift around among the rubbish. They're not fierce enough. But if you are dealing with core public services, then basically government carries the can and, and cannot just step back by saying, as the ridiculous prime minister, oh, I'll privatise the arse off the private passport office, you know. Whereas actually, if you look at the passport office, the two bits of it which aren't working very well are the two bits which are outsourced to foreign companies. Yeah, interesting. I mean, Rachel, the government, this government certainly uh, does tend to see privatisation as the solution. They're threatening to privatise um, the passport office, which we know is in chaos, DVLA, which is also beset with problems. I think the problem with it is that there are certain bits of the public sector that where there isn't a sort of market mechanism that drives improvement. So there isn't actually competition. Um, there isn't actually choice for the consumer. So that's it's when there's choice that the uh, private sector can um, make a real difference. But if you think about, for example, the Randstad company that took over the tutoring program, been widely criticised as dysfunctional and completely ineffective, or the nationalised, uh, the uh, privatised railways, they're now talking about having to bring back into um, public ownership, some of them, because they've been, there's no choice. If you're getting a train somewhere, you, you have to go on the line that's offered um, so the yes. privatisation only but really there was works choice. when yeah but there was choice in 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 uh, uh, utilities suppliers and then look what happens the moment the system comes under stress all the ones which have been undercutting yeah. immediately have to be rescued um, let's yeah. talk about um, working from home. We've had uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg on the warpath at civil servants who are still not at their desks in Whitehall. And now we've had the law firm, Stevenson Harwood, offering lawyers and other staff a uh, this option that they could work full time remotely, but it's going to cost them a 20 percent pay cut. Um, Rachel, is that fair? Um, well, not really, because uh, as I understand it, this is to do with the fact that you're not going to need London waiting if you're working from home, but you might still live in London. So it's a slightly, uh, it's a sort of feels more like a punishment than um, a sort of fair settlement. Um, but I think what's really interesting is there's, it's almost become a sort of part of the culture war, hasn't it? Whether or not you disapprove of working from home or not. And actually, um, as someone who works from home quite a lot, I think you're often more efficient when you work from home if it's in certain kinds of jobs and for if it's done in the right way. Yeah, and some businesses do seem to have learned the lessons and introduced a bit of flexibility so that it works always round. Jacob Rees-Mogg clearly feels that civil servants actually need to be at their desks. Libby? 
Uh, it's it's difficult. It depends entirely on the kind of job you do and also how long you've been in it. I think people who've been in experience a long time have their connections, have their networks, have done a lot of sort of discussing with other people and learning the culture of the company. Uh, whereas the, the newer comers will not have done so. And some will always prefer to go into um, into offices. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by the business of the London waiting because actually it is, it is cheaper to work from home if you're not commuting on the other hand you still have your heating bills and uh, you know there, there are other other considerations I think what's happening is that some people are sort of cheating you know there's a certain amount of working from home while not making any provision for your own childcare, for example and so you know people are people are kind of winging it and I think it's also what it has done. There was a fascinating piece yesterday. It has exposed quite a lot of jobs which actually aren't that necessary. You know, that people are managing to work far fewer hours at home than they ever would if they were in an office um, with anyone supervising. So it is, it's a huge kind of culture war. Um, uh, the, the other story in the papers this morning is about some companies trying to lure people back by bringing in litters of adorable puppies for them to play with. Did you see that? <laughs> Um, in, in which case you sort of think, what? Horrors, what? horrors. What? You know, the, the, world, the world has gone mad. <laughs> you know, it's bad yeah. enough when someone who's, who's, who's left the company or is on maternity leave brings in their baby and all work absolutely stops. I remember that when I was working on a magazine. There was no point getting any work done until they took this baby away because it was so adorable. You know, I think the puppy is not a good scheme. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. You can read them every week. Just get yourself a subscription to The Times. Coming up, what's wrong with Westminster? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is Carol Walker, and now it's time for this. 
Westminster is coming to terms with the fact that some female MPs have been facing up to sexism and misogyny within Parliament. The Times has learnt that Joe Willows, director of the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, told MPs there was a similar trend to last year when 15 cases were opened against MPs for bullying, harassment or sexual misconduct, misconduct, making it possible that more allegations will follow in the coming weeks. Well, it feels as though we heard at least another 15 over the weekend. Earlier on Times Radio, Chloe Tilly asked the Government Minister, Michelle Donnellan, if she'd experienced harassment at work. Um, Well, speaking from my own personal experience, I I haven't. Um, And I do think that shows that this is the minority who are behaving in such a way, uh, not the majority. And we now have the independent complaints and grievance scheme. And my message to anybody who's been a victim of these awful and alarming uh, incidences is to go forward and to uh, report it. You know, some of these stories are just absolutely shocking. They would be shocking in any workplace, let alone in Parliament. We are meant to lead by example. We need to stamp this out and we need to act. How do you stamp it out? Is it a case that the bars need to shut in Westminster to control the out of out of control behaviour of some people when they seem to get very drunk and behave badly? No, I don't think we should be allowing um, this to be used as an excuse. Uh, Are we literally saying that people can't go and have a drink and then behave themselves? Because that is a damning indictment if we are saying that. There are many workplaces where after work people will go uh, with their colleagues for for a drink and that doesn't then excuse them to uh, sexually harass or sexually abuse or, or bully somebody afterwards that's just not acceptable and using bars as an excuse doesn't doesn't wash for me well that was michelle donnellan on times radio breakfast this morning coming up we're going to be talking to a former minister, a former whip, Anne Milton, and to the GMB representative for Starford Parliament, Dominic Moffat. But let's talk now to Jane Merrick, who is policy editor at the iPaper. Good morning, Jane. Hi there, Carol. Hi, Jane. I I know you've been working in the Westminster lobby of political journalists for many years, and it was your experience that actually brought down a cabinet minister, Michael Fallon. Just explain or remind listeners what happened. Yeah, so back in um, 2017, obviously, there were um, people were starting to speak out about their experiences of sexual harassment in Hollywood, but also in the UK and in in just in ordinary walks of life. And I had had an experience of um, sexual harassment when I was a younger journalist. So I started to talk about that, but I didn't say who it was but I wanted to sort of help the debate and as I was doing this I was um, told by other people about Michael Fallon the person who had sexually harassed me Um, I'd heard allegations that he was of other allegations that he was um, had done this to other women so I reported him for sexual harassment and um, to Theresa May and um, he resigned as defence secretary and if you're able to, just tell us a bit more about what happened, because this was a he was a senior figure at Westminster, even when the harassment was occurring. Yes, he was a um, a member, I believe, a quite a senior Tory MP, a member of the um, Treasury Select Committee, I think. Um, back in 2003, I was a, a junior political correspondent on the Daily Mail. And we had gone out for um, lunch, as many journalists will take MPs out for lunch all the time. 
And um, as we were returning from the lunch, we were walking through an area of Westminster that's quite sort of enclosed and not many people go there near the just off Westminster Hall. And he um, lunged at me and tried to kiss me. And I was completely horrified. I mean, I was sort of um, in my 20s. I'd only been in Westminster for two years. I was just completely taken aback. I hadn't really experienced anything like this in Westminster. And I ran away and I didn't report it because I believed that if I did, I would be mistrusted by the Conservative Party, that I no one would talk to me. So I basically didn't say anything. And it was only many years later when people were talking about their experiences of sexual harassment did I realise that I had a responsibility to say that this had happened to me and other people were coming forward about their other experiences from MPs and I felt it was my duty because really there would be women who were the same age as me as I had been when I was sexually harassed who could be experiencing this kind of behaviour from other MPs and it clearly the last few days have shown that they you know this is still going on and I felt it was my responsibility to come out. And um, I, ident- I eventually identified myself as having been sexually harassed by Michael Fallon. And did you think that things improved after you revealed your experience, after the whole Me Too wave hit Westminster and we had all these revelations? Did you feel that things had changed or were you... Have you still always been concerned that there is misconduct going on? I think there was a moment in late 2017 and early 2018 when it really felt like people were seized of this issue. Um, there were talks that were going on about setting up this new independent complaint system, which we now see as the independent complaints and grievance scheme. I was talking to um, Andrea Ledson, that, who was then Commons leader, I and other people involved in in Me Too, like Kate Maltby and others. And we were trying to um, basically give our own experiences about how it could be improved, how the system could be improved. And what was so important then was that there needed to be independence, there needed to be anonymity for people to be able to be encouraged to come forward. And so it was really good that, that in the wake of our experiences that this independent system was set up. And there have been, you know, teething problems with that. It took a long time to introduce. MPs essentially voted against historical allegations, so it wouldn't have been that situation. But it's better than what we had before, which was essentially if you were a member of staff working for an MP and he he or she had bullied you or harassed you, your only recourse was to complain to your boss, who was that MP. So it's better than what we had before. But I think there are still problems. And I think what has changed is that people are more likely to come forward and to complain. But I don't think the issue has gone away. I think there was a moment when I maybe thought in 2017 that the you know perpetrators would, would do this sort of behaviour less. But actually, I don't think it has gone away. I think, I think it's, the problem is still there. The difference is that people are more likely to stand up and say that is wrong. Let's bring in Dominic Moffat, who is the GM representative for the Houses of Parliament and a parliamentary staffer. Hello, Dominic. Hi, Carol. Thank you for having me on. Good to have you with us. We have now got this new system, which Jane has described there, so that there is an independent complaints process. How much difference do you think that's made? Well, I have to say, in our experience as the GMB union, it's made a lot of difference. There is now 
an independent process that people can go through that offers some sort of recourse when things go wrong. But what we don't believe and what the GMB doesn't believe is that, it, that they're kind of empowered to go far enough. And as um, James already pointed out, the, so historic offences were included, but the time, the time for reporting historic offences has now closed. So people who are kind of remembering things or built up the courage to come back with historic cases can't do that anymore again. And do you think that more significant changes are needed. We've had um, the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, suggesting that instead of staff uh, like yourself and those that you represent um, being employed pretty much directly by an MP, that there should be um, a different arrangement whereby you are employed by a parliamentary authority, even if you're working to a specific MP. I mean, would that make a difference? Absolutely. I mean, we at the GMB think that an independent professional HR service would significantly improve the working lives of parliamentary staff. It's something that would allow MPs to focus on their real job of representing constituents and legislating and not focus on kind of holiday benefits, leave, doing contracts when they expire, renewing contracts, worrying about sick leave which is best done by people who know exactly what they're doing and who don't have a kind of a political stake in it and are going to treat it like a professional thing. I didn't always think that was necessary, but I think the last few years have shown us that it absolutely is. And that's something that will really improve working life for people across the parliamentary state at all levels. Dominic, do you think that this is ultimately about power? It's not just about women, is it? Um, I mean, We've seen uh, male MPs saying that they have also uh, faced uh, harassment and improper behaviour. Do you think that this is about a power imbalance and that it is the staff, the junior researchers, that are perhaps the most vulnerable? Absolutely. There was an article in the paper a couple of days ago, I think maybe at the beginning of the weekend, when this first happened, talking about how it's power imbalances that cause all of this. And Chris Bryant, um, who has been good on lots of things, was saying he didn't think an independent HR system was necessary. Well, I disagree with Chris on that. And that's because um, where it's sexual assault and sexual harassment, they come from power imbalances. And if MPs are taught that they can't get away with abusing their positions of power, then that will lessen the number of kind of sexual issues that we encounter as well. That is not to say in any way that most MPs aren't excellent employees. I think they are, and that applies on both sides of the aisle. We've dealt, we deal with cases with all sorts of uh, all parties of MPs, and indeed, my own experience in Westminster has been fantastic. That's one of the reasons why I got involved with the GMB because I think that everyone who works in Westminster deserves to have such an interesting, exciting, pressured, and hard work, but yeah. a rewarding career here. Yeah, I mean, I worked at Westminster as a journalist uh, for the BBC for over 20 years. And I have to say, although I certainly faced some condescension, some patronising and so on, I don't feel I ever really faced any of the sort of harassment that others have done. Um, but I, I wonder, Jane, whether you feel that um, there is... This, this it's an institutional problem. I mean, we, we're now hearing that there was a lockdown party in Number 10 where there was a, a mock Sexist of the Year award. Jane? A cult, yeah, I think there is a cultural issue um, in Westminster. I don't think it's 
I don't think it's the case that most MPs are bad. I think most MPs are actually very good. They're very courteous. They're very hardworking, as Dominic has just said. But I think there is a sort of a sense of, um, we saw this with the expenses scandal as well, a sense of entitlement that MPs have, that the only people who can get rid of them are their voters at election time or in a in a recall um, situation. So there is no, they're not really, you know, they're answerable to the whip, they're answerable to the prime minister, but really in those day-to-day situations, they are their own, they are the boss and they're in charge. And I think that entitlement, as we've been discussing, leads to, you know, so many power imbalances. It's, it's obviously very difficult for um, members of staff who work for them. But there is also, I think, a, um, you know, Westminster has been a boys club for a very long time and it's only gradually changing. So there is probably, I've experienced, um, as you, you have, you know, low level condescension and being patronised in Westminster. And I think there is a problem, yes, but I don't think it's so ingrained. You know, there are so many female MPs in Parliament, um, as we've heard in the last week, that women MPs are more likely now to stand up for this sort of thing. I don't think women are necessarily being put off from going into politics. Um, so I don't think it's it's a terribly sexist place, but I think that there are just occasions when that sense of entitlement can become a problem. Yeah, I was talking to Kwasi Kwarteng, the business minister, about this yesterday. He said that he thought that there were some bad apples, but that it was a mistake to say that uh, this means that there is a culture of sexism and misogyny in Parliament. Um, Dominic, do, would you agree with that? Do you think the minister was right? Um, I, I would say that uh, it, it's... I don't like the phrase, there are some bad apples, because it's 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 trying to get away from the actual issue. And the issue is that there are people in Westminster that are sexist, just as there are people across the country and in all workplaces that are sexist. And what we need to do and what the GMB thinks we need to do is kind of build a, a kind of a rela- relationship where that is no longer seen as acceptable. And the Independent com- Complaints and Grievance Scheme has begun that work. It has done fantastic work over the last couple of years, but we still need to go further. And that's why we need the ability of that scheme to introduce harsh complaints and why we need to take certain rules like HR out of MPs' hands so they cannot continue to believe that they mark their own homework. Jane, how much do you think alcohol is a problem? I mean, there are bars everywhere. There are bars outside every office just about. Um, There are certainly plenty within Westminster. Is that at the heart of the problem or or is that perhaps just making excuses? I think it's making excuses. I mean, yes, there are more bars than you would than you would expect in a normal working environment. Um, But obviously the hours in in Parliament are slightly more social, well, more family friendly than they used to be. Um, So you don't get late night sittings, but you do have MPs and staff who go to the bars and it is there is that a drinking culture but i don't think it's a, a problem that is is at the heart of the problem rather i think it, it it is an excuse to say that um some of these you know mps who are doing this bad behavior it, it's just because they're drinking i think that's wrong i think in many of these situations actually there are incidents of bullying and sexual harassment that go on in mps offices on a day-to-day basis that have nothing to do with drink that are all to do with power Jane Merrick, um, policy editor at the I. Um, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. And a huge thank you as well to Dominic Moffat, who is the GMB representative for the Houses of Parliament and a parliamentary staffer. Let's talk to the former minister and former whip, Anne Milton. Uh, Good morning to you, Anne. Good morning, Carol. Have you been shocked at the latest allegations that we've heard over the weekend? Neil Parrish uh, now resigning as an MP after watching pornography in the Commons. A whole list of other complaints. Anne-Marie Trevelyan, now a minister, talking about how she was pinned up against a wall. Um, Suella Braverman saying that some MPs were behaving like animals. Um, Are you surprised at the scale of the complaints and the concerns and what is going on? I'm slightly shocked, Carol, more than anything, slightly depressed, to be honest. You you know, I went into politics late in life. I was older. And what the stories that we're hearing are all things that wouldn't have been acceptable when I was in my 20s. And so the fact that it's still going on is is pretty depressing. Um, Whether it's worse, you know, I left in 2019... I was deputy chief whip for two years. It didn't feel as bad then. Maybe it was because I just wasn't hearing about it. But it is pretty depressing when you're seeing standards of behaviour that that would not be acceptable 30 years ago. We were hearing from Jane Merrick there that when the whole Me Too wave, when a lot of people felt able to talk about their past experiences of sexual harassment and bullying um, came forward and talked about them. Um, And there were some changes then. I mean, did you feel at that stage, you were in Parliament um, back then, that that was the moment that things were going to change? Well, I think it certainly is. is, I I mean, I agree with much of what Dominic and Jane said. And um, I, I think the really important change was that there is now somewhere for staff to go. And up to 2000, up until the ICGS was formed, there was nowhere for staff to go. So actually, as Deputy Chief Whip, a lot of staff came came to me. So um, I think it was good from that point of view. But fundamentally, standards of behaviour, the culture of the place, is dependent upon all those in senior positions, leadership positions, demonstrating by example the highest possible standards of behaviour and what you would expect of anyone in public life. And by doing so, those who fall short of those standards of behaviour can be reprimanded and more serious sanctions imposed. So what senior people do within all the political parties and within government is behave properly at all times. So when we hear stories uh, such as that reported in the Sunday Times yesterday, that there was apparently a, a sexist of the year uh, competition at a party which was held in number 10 during lockdown. Um, I mean, does that suggest to you that the problems do come from the top, that this is not a government or a party that sufficiently takes this matter seriously? Well, if it's true, I'm appalled. I'm absolutely appalled, sadly, not entirely surprised. Um, it, w- it was a while ago now, but I saw a shot of a cabinet meeting and the prime minister talking about, you know, shoving the ball to the back of the scrum and all that sort of thing. This sort of laddish male 
illusions do not help things. And if that is the case, that somebody was given sexist of the year, that is terrible. And that is people who do not understand what the problem is. And when I was speaking to Kwasi Kwarteng, the business minister yesterday, he was saying that he felt, yes, there were some bad apples in Parliament who had behaved badly, but that it was wrong to draw from this the conclusion that there was a culture of misogyny and sexism. And indeed, Pauline Latham, a conservative, a serving conservative MP, said that she felt that although clearly what Neil Parrish had done was wrong, that he'd made a mistake. She said that was a moment of madness and that we should be talking about other things. Well, um, I mean, there are other serious things going on, but this is serious because um, we live in a parliamentary democracy and we elect people and the trust of the public in our institutions is dependent on what they see that goes on in Parliament. So it's, it's wider than just what's going on in a workplace. Um, I, I was never a victim of misogyny. I don't think a bit of, you know, being patronised and that sort of thing. But but I, th- I think it really does matter because it's about trust and faith in our democracy and in our parliament. So um, Kwasi Kwarteng is right. You know, th- this doesn't affect very many people. But it is important because, I mean, I can get quite angry about this, Carol. This wasn't acceptable 30 or 40 years ago. So for goodness sakes, why is it still going on and why hasn't it been stopped? And I have to look to the leadership, those in leadership positions. And it's not just the prime ministers, it's secretary of state, it's the chief whip, and it's all political parties. They have got to demonstrate by example. And if you're doing awards for sexist of the year, for goodness sakes, I mean, this is just so unacceptable. It's not true. Do you think it would make a difference? Uh, You worked as a whip. Um, Do you think it would make a difference if there were more women in positions like that of um, chief whip, the person who's in charge of discipline within the party, a woman who people felt that they could go to if there were questions of harassment, that perhaps it might make it easier for people to come forward? I I think it it does help. Uh, I mean, the whip's office in all the political parties is important. It it undertakes an HR function. This is where people can come when they've got problems. Uh, there was a little moment where I think there was a lot of talk of rather old-fashioned, 40, 50 years out-of-date whipping where they were threatening MPs. That has no place and had no place in Parliament even when I was there. So I think it can help, but it's very hard if you want to enforce high standards of behaviour, if those in leadership positions aren't demonstrating by their example that they are behaving properly at all times and at a standard that you'd expect of anybody in public life. Uh, Sarah Parks has got in touch with the programme on Twitter, says how many other workplaces offer this plethora of opportunities to get drunk at subsidised prices during work hours? Alcohol is generally expressly forbidden in places of employment for the rest of us. Um, Do you think that she has a point? Is that part of the problem or is that just an excuse for misbehaviour? Well, I think one's got to separate excuses and explanations. So... Alcohol might be part of the explanation why people resort to poor behaviour. But yes, I do agree with that. I think that um, there is no other workplace 
where you'd be allowed to drink. And Michelle Donlan, I think the minister this morning, talked about people going for a drink after work. Well, actually, if they're in Parliament, they're still in work. <laughs> they haven't left the office, actually. So I think reluctantly, you know, I've, I've changed my mind on this, I think, over the years and particularly more recently. I think it isn't terribly appropriate to have all the bars open. You know, there, there are restaurants and maybe meal with dinner, but it's not really appropriate in 2022. And it, it is something that you can do because actually these standards of behaviour aren't acceptable in 2022. So and you're going to close down the bars, are you? <laughs> well, I'm 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 free of politics, Carol. <laughs> but I think I, I think it's about creating a culture and an atmosphere and reminding people that this is a workplace. They are at work. They are people in the public eye. Part of their workday is televised on the Parliament Channel. You know, so they have got to behave properly. I, I don't think I don't get me wrong. Closing down the bars would certainly not necessarily change any behaviour, but it would send a message. Anne Milton, um, former Women's Minister and former Deputy Chief Whip, great to have you with us. Thank you. That's all from today's episode of the Red Box Politics Podcast. Matt Chorley will be back tomorrow. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.